Welcome to number 21 of our Didache. After tonight, we have three lessons left, all on the sacrament of the altar, the Lord's Supper. So we will begin with prayer and then uh, taking a look at the catechism. And did everyone pick up the sheet private confession at the door so that we can look at that? Okay, we'll... We'll be looking at the catechism first after prayer, private confession, and then going into our Bible reading after that. Okay? Let us pray. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Almighty God, by your Son, our Savior, you have always given to your church on earth faithful shepherds to guide and feed your flock. Therefore, we pray, make all pastors diligent to preach your holy word and to administer your means of grace, and grant your people wisdom to follow in the way that leads to life eternal. Through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. All right, if you will turn in your Lutheran Catechesis to page 253, these are the questions from last week, but I want to begin here with these and use that as a basis for going into the rite of private confession and absolution, explaining it, and then taking any questions that you might have. The first question that's not on this page, in this whole section in the Catechism, asks, what is confession? And remember, confession has two parts. First, that we confess our sins, which is the normal part of the Christian life, the Lord's Prayer, uh, corporate confession in the divine service. So many of the Psalms are confessions of sin. So, first, that we confess our sins. And second, that we receive absolution, the fancy word for forgiveness from the pastor as from God himself. Well, it is from God. The pastor is speaking Christ's word of forgiveness. Okay. As I mentioned to you last week, when we were looking at David, who fell into grievous sin and for a time was impenitent, he really needed a pastor from outside of himself to use God's word to call him to repentance for his salvation's sake. And so Nathan came to him and he told that parable of the rich man and the poor man and so forth. And and David seethes with anger and the anger that he seethes with ends up being anger against himself and the judgment of God's law. And then Nathan says, you are the man. So Confession has two parts. First, that we confess our sins. Second, that we receive absolution. But what I said last week with that story is that, unfortunately, we look at private confession, which is a gift. It's not a mandatory obligation. It's a gift. Another opportunity to receive Christ's forgiving word, to strengthen our faith, to comfort our consciences, But we look at it for the big sins, in quotes, you know, like murder, physical adultery, 
David was guilty of that. He ought to go to confession. And that's the danger of last week's story, that we see it only as an extraordinary thing for those extraordinary cases and don't see it for the ordinary things of life. So on page 253 of Lutheran Catechesis, we've got the next two questions in the catechism. And as we go through these, notice how mundane it is, how ordinary, you know. So first question, what sins should we confess? Before God, we should plead guilty of all sins, even those we are not aware of, as we do in the Lord's Prayer. But before the pastor, we should confess only those sins which we know and feel in our hearts. So you see how this question is envisioning the right of private confession and absolution. Before God, we plead guilty of all sins. We've talked about that with the Lord's Prayer and other times we confess our sins. But before the pastor, that's envisioning privately. So what, when should you go to the pastor to confess? When, when you're grieved by your sins, when you're troubled, when you need guidance from God's word and the comfort of the gospel. So that's a huge difference to understand private confession as an opportunity to be comforted, an opportunity to be strengthened in your faith by the word of the gospel. I preach the word of the gospel from the pulpit. That's an absolution, if you hear that word and you believe it. But sometimes you're so torn up inside or troubled that that's not enough. Or, or your conscience or the devil is kind of saying, but that, that doesn't mean you and you're still burdened by your sin. So we retain the gift of private absolution, a private confession, for the sake of the absolution and the comfort that it gives, the strengthening of faith that it gives. Okay. Now this next question. So before the pastor, we confess only those sins we know and feel in our hearts. Oh, one other thing here. That's a huge contrast from the medieval age, the Middle Ages the medieval church where you had to name all your sins or the absolution was in doubt. Well, who in the world can name every sin of thought, word, and deed? So instead of giving comfort and certainty, it gave discomfort and a lack of certainty. Okay. All right. So which are these? Consider your place in life according to the Ten Commandments. Are you a father, mother, son, daughter, husband, wife, or worker. Stop. Who among us here who are fathers aren't and haven't been at times in our lives grieved over our failings, our shortcomings as fathers, things we wish we had done differently? Or if you're a mother, how many of us how many of you, as mothers, can say to yourself, you know, I was the perfect mother all of the time. You know, I never lost my cool ever. I had a balance of, you know, discipline and compassion for my kids. I was just, I was like the best mom there ever was. 
as a father and mother, those are some of the deepest hurts and things that trouble us because we love our children. We don't want to mess up. And so when we do mess up, that can be some of the greatest burdens of life and the greatest ways in which our consciences are troubled. A son, a daughter, who has failed a father or mother, a husband or wife. You know, how many of us can say, you know, I look back on my marriage of 37 years and I say, I have been the most awesomely perfect husband. Or I have been the most awesomely greatest wife. Here again, just as a, a relationship of a father or mother to children, the most intimate of relationships with those you love, and when you screw up, they're a burden, so also here, no one is closer to you than your spouse. So I think over the course of my ministry, looking at members of the congregation, the things that have troubled them the most are how they've had sin and failure in those relationships. I, I haven't yet had a wife that, and what really troubles me is I shot my husband to death last night. I haven't had that. But I've had, what really troubles me is I screamed at my husband, or I was harsh with my wife, and I was impatient with her, and I lost my cool, and I said things I shouldn't have said. That I've heard a lot of. And now I feel horrible because of it. So you see, the ordinary things of life. Or a worker. You know, how have you failed in the job, in the work that you're given to do in your vocation? Laziness, sloth, what have you. Or, you know you should, uh, you should be faithful and obedient to the, to the boss, but he is not a Christian, he's a nasty man, and so behind his back you'd like to whatever make some gesture in his direction. Or maybe you slack off on the job because he doesn't deserve a worker like me, but then afterwards you feel the guilty conscience. Okay? So this is ordinary stuff. Now, let's continue on with the recitation. Have you been disobedient, unfaithful, or lazy? Have you been hot-tempered, rude, or quarrelsome? Have you hurt someone by your words or deeds? Have you stolen, been negligent, wasted anything, or done any harm? Notice, the questions here are not, have you robbed a bank? Have you embezzled $550,000? Uh, have you committed mass murder? <laughs> These are the ordinary things. Negligence, laziness, short-temperedness, spoken something you shouldn't have spoken. Okay. So, again, to repeat, private confession and absolution is a gift and opportunity to be strengthened in your faith and comforted in your conscience by Christ's forgiveness. Because when you name your sin specifically that troubles you to the pastor, that in itself is 
a hard thing to do because it brings the sin out into the light of day. But it's salutary because it names it. And it has a killing effect. And it expresses the desire, I don't want to be that father or husband or wife or mother. And then when the word of forgiveness, after the sin is named that particularly troubles you, is spoken to you, Kevin, I forgive you all your sins in the name of the Father and of the Son of the Holy Spirit. And then add additional Bible passages. You are a new man in Christ who has covered your sin. You are a new husband. That is power, because nobody else is there, but God and your pastor who has heard your confession, it's God's ears, and then has spoken the absolution, God's mouth. So it has a powerful effect when you're troubled in your conscience and you have trouble believing that the gospel that is preached to the whole congregation is for you. It privately, there ain't nobody else there. And it is for you. Notice the absolution. I forgive you all your sins. Which means the absolution is not only for the sin that you've named that troubles you or grieves you, but it is for all your sins in addition to that which troubles you and grieves you and that you've named. Okay? So that's why we retain it. It is for the comfort of the absolution and the strength that the absolution gives. And there's another byproduct of the absolution. The absolution, the more you learn to live from it and receive it, the more it becomes transformative for your lives. You'll, you'll never be perfect at being patient. But if you are struggling with being patient and you confess that and you come often, the absolution bears fruit to strengthen you to be patient. So as Christians, we believe in Christ for the forgiveness of sins. And as Christians, we actually desire to love God and to love our neighbor. The absolution strengthens us to do that as does the Lord's Supper. Okay? So it's a living and powerful word. And let me give you an analogy on this. If you as husbands and wives or parents and children are honest with each other and actually confess to one another without, without you know, self-justification, like, I'm sorry I did that, but you really made me mad. <laughs> well, how about just, I was wrong. I've sinned against you. I'm sorry. When you do that and then you respond, for Jesus' sake, I forgive you, that strengthens the trust that a husband and wife have for each other. It strengthens the love they have for each other. The same thing is true when parents own up to their failings as a father or as a mother. I'm sorry, I went too far. Forgive me. Some parents won't dare admit their failings to their children because they think it's a sign of weakness. It's actually a sign of Christian maturity and strength. And to dare to do that and to seek forgiveness from your children actually produces in them a greater capacity to honor you and to love you 
which is what the fourth commandment asks. Okay? So rather than harming trust, confessing to one another and forgiving one another strengthens trust and strengthens love. That's true amongst each other, like in marriage and in family. It's also true before God. Okay? So the forgiving word of the absolution is a powerful, transformative word for our lives. Because as Christians, we, we do want to love God and love our neighbor, but we find so often we don't have the strength to do it. The absolution strengthens us to do it. And in this life, you know, we'll never perfectly love God and perfectly love our neighbor, but the absolution and the Lord's Supper tutors us and brings us along in, in that. Okay. In, the, absolute, in uh, the conversation of private confession and absolution, it also gives the opportunity for the pastor, particularly when you come more frequently, to know you better, to know your struggles better, and to be able to apply the word of God to you where you need it. So the opportunity for counsel and encouragement from God's word is also a benefit of private confession and absolution. Okay. Any uh, questions about what we've said so far? Now, there are many Lutherans and then, of course, many Christians who have never, who have never experienced private confession and absolution. That doesn't mean they're not Christians. They're baptized and believe in Jesus. They're Christians. If they hear the forgiveness of the Lord preached and they believe it, that's the absolution. So if you think about the difference between private confession and the sermon, is that private confession delivers the sermon's goods to you personally. So you can think of it as an extension of the sermon. You can also understand it to be a return to the wonderful truths of your baptism. Okay? Just like a, a child runs back to mom and dad when they're hurt. They're actually running back, back to that familial identity for love and comfort. So also the absolution, we're returning to that familial baptismal identity for love and comfort. Okay. I, I can't impress upon you enough the power and the benefit and the blessing of private absolution. And it ought to be considered more as an ordinary thing as opposed to an extraordinary thing. Now when I was like 10, 12, 13 years old, it was non-existent in my frame of reference. I am glad to see that in the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, uh, it has enjoyed a tremendous recovery from uh, what it had been in the mid-20th century and the latter half of the 20th century, and it harkens back to the earlier days of, of the Synod when it was more of a normal thing. But there's all kinds of influences in American uh, religion, uh, 
that have caused it not to be practiced. Um, like, I don't need the word of God from outside myself. I don't need a pastor, you know. Um, I, I don't need a church. I don't need sacraments. I don't need any of those things, which is foolishness, but that's a devil's trap. We need all of those things. Like David, I mean, like I said last week, you can hardly find a better or greater theologian in the entire Old Testament than David. And even he needed a pastor. I need a pastor. We all need a pastor to bring the word of God to us from outside of ourselves. Okay. Any questions at this point? Anything at all? Okay, now... Um, you have that little uh, sheet, a private confession absolution? Oh, we could have. Okay. Take it out and let me, um, I meant to do this. In the bulletin, uh, you see there, under we gather to hear God's word, that private confession and absolution is offered at a scheduled time every Sunday morning from 6.30 to 7. Or, it says, by appointment. Um, it's listed there at a scheduled time to try to establish the idea in people's mind that it's a normal thing. It's like, we have divine service, 7.45 and 10.30 on Sunday morning, 6.45 on Wednesday night during Lent, 8, 2.30 and 6.45. We also have daily chapel at 8. I'm always here at 6.30 in the morning for private confession, and I'm vested, and I sit in the chair, and the right that you have is laminated, and it sits here. And I sit here. And you have my ear. And together we can look at the cross. The candles are lit on the, the torches of the pulpit as a reminder and a sign that the same word of the gospel that is preached from the pulpit is now preached and proclaimed to you privately when the pastor stands up and speaks to you, okay? So that's the kind of the logistical arrangement. Even though it is listed as a regular time, 6.30 to 7 on Sunday morning, that's pretty early, it says also, or by appointment. And, and that's fine. Every, I have many people who will send me a text, and uh, maybe they're bringing uh, their kids to school, May I confess, do you have time after chapel? And unless I have an appointment that I have to be somewhere else that I've already made, it's always yes. Okay, so then we, there's chapel, and I'm already vested, and it's 8.30, and kids go to their classroom, we close the doors and have confession. Um, or at other times, if I am engaged with a couple in marital counseling for the renewal of their marriage, or if they're having some tensions and struggles, I may do private confession 
with them individually and or as couples in my study. In that case, I don't vest. But I like to vest, and my teacher, Dr. Corby, recommended it because it is just as sacramental as baptism or the Lord's Supper. So I vest as a sign that I am in Christ's stead, in the stead and by the command of my Lord Jesus Christ, I forgive you all your sins. I wear the stole, that's the yoke of office. And when you're in the chancel and you're vested as a pastor, it establishes the proper relationship because there can be some very intimate things that are confessed. It's like your medical doctor, your physician, might know you intimately, your physical problems, and it's appropriate for him to know that so that he can treat you. So also the pastor learns to know your spiritual struggles. Um, and so being vested helps to maintain that um, important relationship and remind the pastor and the penitent who's coming um, what this conversation is about. And in that vein, what is talked about and confessed here is sacrosanct. I cannot speak about it to anyone except God. Um, I've commented recently, in some respects, the pastor jo pastor's job is a lonely job because I can't tell 90% of what I say and do to my wife or my children. I can only talk to God. But that's for your safety and for your benefit that you might know that you can have the confidence to come to your pastor and confess. And just like I said when you confess to each other as husband and wife, it strengthens the bond of trust and love between the two of you. The same is actually true of the pastor with his sheep, his penitents. Because what you need to know is that I go to a pastor. His name is Pastor Doug Peters, by the way, in case you want to know that. He's the pastor at Trinity downtown, the church that burned and they're rebuilding, Old Trinity. Okay, um, So I see him. What private confession and absolution teaches me is, and by me hearing and by me going, is how deep the problem of original sin is. Okay? You know that there are there's sin and weakness in your life that is known only to you. And you may feel extremely ashamed or guilty about feelings or thoughts and attitudes and so forth. Okay? Private confession and absolution teaches the pastor who hears and the practice who the pastor who goes the depth of the problem of sin on the one hand 
And then on the other hand, the power and glory of Christ's forgiveness. Okay. And uh, as great as our sin is, the grace of God in Christ is greater. Okay. So let me, let me go through this right with you. You'll notice it's, it's like two sides. The first side is confession. The second side is absolution. If you think about the catechism, confession has two parts. First, that we confess. Second, that we receive absolution. And the penitent begins with, O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. That's from Psalm 51. For you do not desire sacrifice, or else I would give it. You do not delight in burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. These, O oh God, you will not despise. All of those words are Psalm 51, verses 15 through 17. And those words from Psalm 51 are the words that David prayed after Nathan you know, confronted him with his sin, called him to repentance, heard his confession, and forgave him. What we looked at last week. Those are the words of the psalm that grew out of that ministry to him. So, O Lord, open my lips to confess, and my mouth will declare your praise. Probably none of you would think of confessing sin as praise to God. But any time you say out loud what is true according to God's word with a penitent heart, that gives praise to God. Yet you don't think of confession. Confession of sin is praise to God, but it is. Because it says, he's God and I'm not. He's the righteous one and I'm the sinner. God be merciful to me. When the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector the Pharisee, I thank God I'm not like other sinners. I fast, I give tithes, I do this. Not like that tax collector. That's not praise of God, that's praise of himself. But when the tax collector is ashamed and beats his breast and says, God be merciful to me, a sinner, that gives praise to God. That honors him. Okay. And notice from this section of the psalm, a broken and a contrite heart, these, O oh God, you will not despise. God will never turn his back on the broken and contrite heart. Remember the prodigal son, the father. His greatest joy, the joy of the father, was to run to that boy, throw his arms around him, kiss him, and restore him. That was his greatest joy as it would be for you if a child who had, from whom you had been estranged returns to you and says, I'm sorry, Mom. I'm, I've sinned against you. I forgive you. Come home. Okay. So that gives honor and praise to God. So that's, that's an opening invocation, if you will. Then, dear pastor, I ask you please to hear my confession and to pronounce forgiveness to me because I'm such a spectacularly nice person. No. Pronounce forgiveness to me in order to fulfill God's will. I don't have a choice. Speak on. As a pastor, I must hear your confession. 
whether I like you or not. I must hear, because I'm bound by oath to God in my ordination to do this. Okay? And so the pastor says, speak on, because this is an oral transaction. And then what comes next is a general confession. Notice how, if you think about the Ten Commandments, and you think about how they're divided into two parts, our relationship to God, we should fear, love, and trust in God above all things, our relationship to one another, love your neighbor as yourself, how it, how it goes through that. I have lived as if God did not matter and as if I mattered most. See the first commandment in that? My Lord's name I have not honored as I should. My worship and prayers have faltered. Notice second and third commandment behind that. I have not let his love have its way with me. And so, what's the result? My love for others has failed. Now that's moving into the second table of the law, fourth commandment, fifth commandment, sixth commandment. There are those whom I have hurt. We call those sins of commission. And those whom I failed to help. So if you beat the guy up on the road and left him for dead, like the parable of the Good Samaritan, those are sins of commission. And if you, like the priest or the Levite, walked by and didn't help him, those are sins of omission. So there are those whom I've hurt and those whom i failed to help. My thoughts and desires have been soiled with sin. There's original sin. So it really, that general confession kind of sets the stage in naming sin. It also helps the penitent kind of get started because what's there, every one of us could say this at any time. What's the alternative? You know, today I didn't live as if God didn't matter and as if I mattered most. Well, right there, you've already denied what that says. Okay. And then finally, what troubles me particularly is dot, dot, dot. And here, the penitent confesses those sins which disturb or grieve him or her. The penitent concludes the confession of sins with the following. Dear pastor, forgive me all my sins for the sake of my dear Lord Jesus Christ, who died for me and shed his blood for me on the cross for the forgiveness of sins. So in that middle part, the penitent names whatever it is that troubles him or her. Sometimes penitents come, they're troubled, and they're not sure exactly what the sin is. That's okay. The pastor can help you understand what's troubling you on the basis of God's law, you know, what is actually the sin. I, I, I learned this a number of years ago when someone comes weeping and crying and says, I'm such a poor, rotten, miserable person. I needed to ask, why are you saying that? What is it that's troubling you? What have you done? And then out of that, comes the specifics, if it's adultery or something that has caused that sense, I'm just a rotten person. I mean, I don't want to be glib and joke about this, but okay, we know you're a rotten person, but what is it that 
is causing you to say that. So sometimes the pastor needs to help the penitent name the sin in terms of God's law, God's word, the Ten Commandments. And the reason that that's important is because then we know this is what the sin actually is, and now we can apply the gospel to it. Okay? As opposed to, I just, I just feel terrible, okay, I'll forgive you, but if he knew why I felt terrible, would there still be the forgiveness? And that's what the devil does, you see. Um, you didn't really tell the truth, Cherie, see. And so the devil tries, if you had actually named the sin, you wouldn't have been forgiven. And the devil does that. Okay? So the, the glory of the confession is when it's named without any self-justification, then the word of the gospel can be applied. And notice, uh, so there may be some conversation at this point, and it's just the two of us, me and the penitent. Uh, there may also at that point be an opportunity to give some advice, some counsel. But the main point is to, is to name the sin so that the absolution can be applied. Notice the conclusion of the con conversation. Dear Pastor, forgive me all my sins for the sake of my dear Lord Jesus Christ. Not forgive me all my sin because I've named all my sins. Or forgive me all my sins because I promise never to sin again. Or forgive me all my sin because I'm really sincere. None of that is the basis for God's forgiveness. The basis for God's forgiveness is what Jesus has done. That's the ground of certainty. Okay. So that first page is the confession. Then the pastor stands, and I face the penitent who is kneeling here. And here's the absolution side. God be gracious to you and strengthen your faith in his word of absolution. Because the object of faith is Christ's forgiveness. And if we really believe and trust and receive that forgiveness, it is powerful to comfort, to strengthen faith, and to produce fruit. So God be gracious to you and strengthen your faith in his word of absolution. Amen. Do you believe that my forgiveness is God's forgiveness? Yes, I do. The pastor lays his hands on the head of the penitent and makes the sign of the cross upon the forehead and saying, Becca, in the stead and by the command of my Lord Jesus Christ, I forgive you all your sins in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. The pastor will know additional passages with which to comfort and strengthen the faith of those who have great burdens of conscience. And I always add a Bible passage or two or an explanation like a sermon for you applying Christ's forgiveness for you according to your sin. So the example I gave a moment ago with Kevin, you know, if he is burdened by, I haven't been the husband to Rachel that I should, to speak Christ's word, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. By this word of forgiveness, you are a new man. You are a new husband, clothed with the righteousness of Christ, who is the perfect husband and who gives himself to you 
and his righteousness to strengthen and comfort you to be husband to your wife. That's an example of you know, how to, using the word of God and Bible passages to apply to the penitent where they hurt the most. At the conclusion of that, then there's the blessing. The God of peace will sanctify you wholly and keep your spirit, soul, and body sound and blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful, and he will do it. Go in peace. Amen. So there's the rite of uh, private confession that we use here. There's, it's almost identical to the rite that's in the hymnal. Uh, there's a few slight differences. Um, the reason I copied this for you so that you'd have this, and this is also what we use, um, uh, and because the other one is already in the hymnal, but the essential elements and how it is done is handled the same way. Any questions at all? You're too afraid to ask. I have, I have taught you into total silence. How many would say just with a show of hands, that you've learned something about private confession and absolution from last week and today that you didn't know before. Would you say that? Okay. How many of you would say then that that is helpful? Okay. All right. Well, without... Any further ado, then, turn to Matthew chapter 9. So I began with an extended discussion of the right of private confession and absolution. So that you'd have that backdrop for this wonderful um, account in the ministry of Jesus about the gift of absolution and the power to forgive sin. When I was Caleb's age, and I brought, I brought lots of my friends to church, um, high school, junior high started, and in high school, I brought my friends to church. Uh, particularly, um, I brought my non-Lutheran friends who were committed Christians but of other denominations. And you know, at the church service, do you know the, the one thing, bar none, that they objected to in the service? Do you know what it was? In the stead and by the command, I forgive you. He can't do that. The pastor can't do that. Only God can do that. Okay? I forgive you all your sins in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Only God can do that. Okay? The other thing I, I the other thing that stood out to those guests that I would bring, and this is especially true of those who were not churchgoers. Um O Almighty God, merciful Father, I, a poor, miserable sinner, 
confess unto you all my sins and iniquities with which I have ever offended you and justly deserve your temporal and eternal punishment. That type of language about sin was scandalous to many who heard it. Because it says that by our sin we deserve hell, condemnation. And that our sin is pervasive. That's the second thing that was a scandal. Okay? Now I give that as a backdrop then for this particular passage. Matthew chapter 9. Whoops, excuse me. Verse 1. So Jesus got into a boat, crossed over the Sea of Galilee, and came to his own city, which would have been Nazareth. And behold, they brought to him a paralytic, which is a paralyzed man, lying on a bed. Now why would people bring a paralyzed man to Jesus, carry him on a cot? What's that? Uh, they, they believed he could heal him. Okay, now that's, um, it's not surprising that you gave that answer. Let me ask you it a different way. If you had someone who was crippled and you really wanted them to hear the preaching and the catechesis at Peace Lutheran Church. Would you offer to bring them? But they're, but they're so paralyzed. I mean, they're quadriplegic. You'd have to carry them in. But they really wanted to come. Would you make arrangements to do that? Okay, why? So they could hear. Isn't that interesting? What Becca, the answer that Becca gave the first time was so that Jesus could heal him of his paralysis. The answer you gave the second time so they could hear the word of God and the preaching. Now, it's, it's the same, but I think it, I, I need you to hear. This man couldn't bring himself, so he needed to be brought. And in the Gospels, people pressed about Jesus to hear him because why? He spoke a word of forgiveness and comfort that they didn't get from the scribes and Pharisees. They got works righteousness from them. They got guilt upon guilt. The Pharisees were holy, but these sinners, that's why they objected, the Pharisees, to Jesus eating with sinners, proclaiming forgiveness and grace to them. So they brought this paralyzed man to Jesus because they, they wanted him to hear Jesus. I can't, I can't, you know, when Jeremy LaFour was, couldn't move his legs and couldn't move his arms, I couldn't tell him, Jeremy, rise up and walk. But I could forgive him his sins, as you'll see in a moment. And wonder of wonders, God chose to reverse this paralysis, which no doctor thought would ever happen. Okay. I could give him the body and blood of Christ. That's a miracle. But I couldn't 
I know he would walk again in the resurrection. I didn't know he would walk again in this life. So God be praised. Okay. All right, so what I want you to see here is they, they, he couldn't bring himself, so they had to bring him. And they brought him because they believed in him. Look what it says. Jesus, seeing their faith, the faith of the men who brought him, and I would argue the faith of the man too. He couldn't get there himself, but he believed in Jesus. He wanted to hear, we'll get you there. We'll get you there. Son, be of good cheer. Your sins are forgiven you. Now, what Becca identified before is they wanted him to heal him. I think that's the natural response of people today when they read through the Gospels and they see Jesus performing the healing miracles. Oh, here, he's a crippled man. He's going to heal him. And so often he does. But what's the surprise in this is the first words out of Jesus' mouth are not, rise up and walk, but the first words out of Jesus' mouth are, son, be of good cheer, your sins are forgiven. But he's still paralyzed and lying on the cot. Okay, now look what happens. And at once, some of the scribes said within themselves, this man blasphemes. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven you, or to say, Arise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. Then he said to the paralytic, Arise, take up your bed, and go to your house. And he arose and departed to his house. Now when the multitude saw it, they marveled, and glorified God who had given such power to men. Okay, let's roll the tape back. When they said, this man's blaspheming, what had Jesus just done? What had Jesus just said? Son, be of good cheer, your sins are forgiven. Blaspheme, blaspheme, you're blaspheming. Only God can forgive sins. The same thing that my friends in junior high and high school were saying, he can't do that, the pastor can't do that. Now you might say, well, of course, the pastor can't, but Jesus could. And the charge of blasphemy against Jesus because he forgave sin, well, it doesn't apply to Jesus, but it does apply to the pastor. Well, notice what it says at the end. At the end, verse 8, when the multitude saw it, they marveled and glorified God who had given such power to a man, to men, plural. Is the only place that Jesus forgave sins was in the Bible 2,000 years ago to a paralyzed man, but he doesn't do it now? Is that what we're saying? Now, I'm not sure you're not saying that, but those who would say you can't do that. Just like with Jesus taking up the little children and blessing them with forgiveness, is the only time he did that 2,000 years ago, but not ever since? No, he does it now in the waters of baptism. He makes us all little children, and he takes us up in his arms. Okay? They accuse Jesus of blasphemy. Now, blasphemy, remember, is taking to yourself authority or claiming authority or power from God that you have no right to claim. Of course, Jesus had the right to that, to forgive sins. Why? Because he died for sin. Now, his death hasn't happened yet, but it will, and his death 
extends both forward in time and backward into the Old Testament to Adam himself. Okay? So the forgiveness of sin, there's no other source of forgiveness than Jesus' death, which is part of the problem why people object to a pastor forgiving sin. It's like saying of baptism, it's not baptism that saves, it's Christ. Well, excuse me, but Jesus Christ is the content of baptism. That's why baptism saves. It's not some different salvation from the death and resurrection of Jesus. So also here, it's not the pastor who can forgive sins, it's Christ. Well, Christ gave to his pastors the word and promise of forgiveness for them to proclaim to broken and contrite sinners. So as he forgave sinners in the Bible times, so he forgives sinners today as pastors speak in the stead and by the command of Christ. Okay? So, come back to the text here. Son, be of good cheer. Your sins are forgiven. Verse 3, at once this man blasphemes. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier... To say your sins are forgiven you, or to say arise and walk? Now, I'm going to come back to these questions in a moment in verse 5. But I want to go to verse 6. But that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. Then he said to the paralytic, arise, take up your bed and go to your house. So according to verse 6, why did Jesus heal the cripple and cause him to be able to walk according to verse 6. Why did he do it? What is the reason, according to verse 6, that he made the crippled man walk? That he may know, that you might know that the Son of Man has power to forgive sins. Do you see it there? So he caused the crippled man to walk to show them that he had indeed the power to forgive sins. Because what they're, what they're accusing him of blasphemy for is forgiving sin. I'm going to prove to you that I've got the power to forgive sins. Rise up and walk. And he rose up. This guy had been crippled. I guess he's got the power. But what's the greater miracle? Forgiveness of sin before God that would damn you to hell? Or a crippled man walking? What's the greater miracle? The forgiveness of sins, you see. And indeed, sin is the cause of all of our maladies. If there were no sin, there'd be no sickness. No cancer, no heart disease, no death. But where there's forgiveness of sins, there's life. Resurrection. Okay? So, that you might know the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins... He said to the paralytic, rise up and walk, and he did. So he performed the miracle of healing to illustrate and show that he had the power to forgive sins to those who accused him of blasphemy. Now let's go to those questions. Before going to those other questions in verse 5. When Jesus said to the paralytic, rise up and walk, What did those words do? 
rise up and walk. What did those words do? What? What's that? What did they do? Look at it. Walk. This is obvious. You say, I want you to see the obvious here. I don't want the theological. I want the obvious. When God said, let there be light, what did that cause? Hello? Light. Out of darkness. Do you see what I'm trying to get you to see here? God's word, Jesus' word, does what it says. It performs it. Right? If I went outside tonight and shouted, let there be light, I can shout that for 24 hours and that's not going to be light until the sun shines tomorrow morning. My words as a man, Peter Bender, don't have the power to do that. But when God speaks, his word is performative speech. Right? You understand what I'm saying? Rise up and walk. It does what it says. You can see it when he says, rise up and walk, as the guy's laying there paralyzed, and then he gets up. Son, be of good cheer. Your sins are forgiven. That word is performative speech, too. Except you don't, you don't see forgiveness. When I forgive Rachel, I forgive you all your sins. You are holy and righteous. You look the same now as you did five minutes ago. But it's still performative speech. The one you can see because the guy gets up, you can see it. The other one you can't see, but it's no less performative speech. It gives what it says. You follow? Now look at verse 5. Which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven, or to say arise and walk? Now, he's not talking about simply mumbling words. They're about equally difficult. Right? Right? Your sins are forgiven, rise up and walk. I mean, they're not, it's not a tongue twister. I can say both of them equally well. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about performative speech. Which of you who are accusing me of blasphemy can say and perform what the speech says, namely, arise up and walk, or your sins are forgiven? The answer is not, please see, which is easier? Is it easier to say your sins are forgiven? Or maybe it's easier to say rise up and walk. The problem is they couldn't do either. either one. They couldn't do either one. If they're objecting to Jesus forgiving, you can't do that. You think they could? They were saying they couldn't do it either. He's talking about performance, performative speech. Which is easier? To say into the darkness of eternity, let there be light, or let the earth bring forth Vegetation. Uh, well, I can't do either one. Both are performative speech. Only God can do them. But at the end of this, what had God done? He gave the authority to forgive sins to men. To men. Not just the man Christ Jesus, the Son of God, but to men. And how do we know that? Well, because it says it in the text that he gave this power to men. And if you go to your Lutheran catechesis uh, to page 267,
you have the quotation from John chapter 20 under the where is this written? St. John the Evangelist writes in chapter 20 and what's in bold here is quoting quotation from the Bible. The Lord Jesus breathed on his disciples and said, receive the Holy Spirit. Now that's performative speech too. When he speaks and says, receive the Holy Spirit, by that very word, he's giving the Spirit. And then look, if you forgive anyone his sins, they are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, you withhold forgiveness from them, they are not forgiven. How about that? There's the promise. This is a part of a pastor's ordination. Okay? If you forgive anyone his sins, they are forgiven. They marveled that God had given such power to men. Here it is. But it's not here only. If you're in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 9, if you just go a little bit further ahead to chapter 16, Matthew chapter 16, after Peter... And on behalf of all the apostles, confesses in verse 16, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom, the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. That's why we call this section confession and the office of the keys. Christ's forgiveness opens the kingdom of heaven. Withholding forgiveness binds, closes the kingdom. And then that's chapter 17. Turn to chapter 18. And in chapter 18, verse 18, Assuredly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. That's withholding forgiveness so that people realize the seriousness of their sin. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again I say to you that if two of you agree on earth concerning anything that they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there in the midst of them. Private confession gathers together at the very least two, the pastor and the penitent. And in confession, according to God's word, and the hearing of that confession, which is the truth, according to God's word, and in absolving, according to God's word, two are agreeing on the basis of God's word. Or if you have a husband and wife together with their pastor, where two or three are gathered together, what are they asking for? They're asking for forgiveness. It will be done for them. Now, how do we know that? Verse 21. Peter came to him and said, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? 
Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. So your pastor has to have a clicker with him. Click, click, click. You know, once he gets to 490 times, you've used up the absolution. No, that's not the point. But you see how all of these passages string together here. Now, that, go back to Matthew chapter 9, and if you look at chapter 9, after this, they marveled that he had the power to forgive sins and that he had given it to men. That's what the apostolic ministry is all about. Then Matthew, the tax collector, is called to be a disciple of Jesus, and he restores a woman uh, a little girl to health and, and heals the woman and the mute speaks and in verse 35 Jesus went out about all the cities and villages teaching in their synagogues preaching the gospel of the kingdom healing every sickness and every disease among the people verse 36 but when he saw the multitudes he was moved with compassion for them because they were weary and scattered like sheep having no shepherd or having no pastor, because the word pastor means shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest truly is plentiful, and the laborers are few. Therefore pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest, because there's people in Sussex and the surrounding area that need a pastor to speak the word. And when he had called his 12 disciples to him, he gave them power over unclean spirits to cast them out, to heal all kinds of sickness and all kinds of disease. And that power is rooted in the forgiveness of sins. Now the names of the 12 apostles are these, first Simon, and who's called Peter, and Andrew, and so forth. And then if you skipped all, all this whole section, chapter 10 is about how they're to depend upon the Lord in the apostolic ministry of preaching his word. And then finally, verse 40, he says to them, which he says to ministers today, he who receives you receives me, and he who receives me receives him who sent me. Do you see how the language of the liturgy, Jesus promised, if you forgive anyone his sins, they are forgiven? In the stead and by the command of my Lord Jesus Christ, I forgive you all your sins. Jesus didn't just forgive sins in Bible times. Jesus forgives sins today. Jesus didn't just baptize in Bible times. Jesus baptizes today. Jesus didn't just give the Lord's Supper in Bible times. He gives the Lord's Supper today. Jesus didn't just preach in Bible times. He preaches today. That's why... The pastor jolly well better be accurate according to the apostolic and prophetic scriptures because he is called by Christ to preach Christ's word. Okay? He better administer baptism faithfully according to Christ's institution because he answers to Christ. And if he doesn't do it according to Christ's institution, woe to him. And it's why he is called to distribute the Lord's body and blood according to Christ's institution and to forgive sins according to Christ's institution. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Why would you not forgive them to show them the seriousness of their sin? They're impenitent. They need to be brought to repentance. Okay? So 
that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. He said, rise up and walk. And he rose up and walked. And they marveled that he had given such power to men, not the power to make a cripple walk, but the power of forgiveness, which ultimately will make the cripples walk, and in the resurrection, all sickness will be, uh, will be healed. Okay, questions. Surely you have a question. Amy, you must have a question. You must have a comment. Marty. Yeah. Oh, he's to us as well, it, right? Yeah, there's a both and thing here. So Christians in their office, in their station in life, have the solemn gift and duty uh, to forgive the sins of others. So um, That's not the office of the keys. it's not the office of the keys. The office of the keys, the office of the ministry is the office of the ministry, but as a baptized child of God, you had the wonderful calling to forgive your children for Jesus' sake, to forgive your husband for Jesus' sake, for John to forgive you for Jesus' sake. That's not a different forgiveness. It's sort of like um, if a doctor gives out medicine, he does so according to his office as a physician. If you... Um, give medicine to your children, you do so as a mom, not because you're a physician. But it's not like, okay, um, amoxicillin. If the doctor gives your child amoxicillin, then the amoxicillin works. But if you give the amoxicillin, it doesn't work. That's, that's foolishness. Amoxicillin is amoxicillin, okay? Forgiveness of sins for Jesus' sake is forgiveness of sins. Now, I have a public responsibility to do it, okay? My office is not the office that you have, okay? But the forgiveness is the same, just like the physician administers medicines. The medicine works because it's the medicine. You have the right to administer amoxicillin to your kids, or let's say, how about this? You know, your, your child has um, an allergy, and you have an EpiPen for them. It's your calling to administer the EpiPen to your child. It's not the perfect strangers, unless they maybe know what they're doing or something. You know, they could administer, I happen to have an EpiPen here, I'll give it to you. Well, that's not your call to, to make. You know, so... We have callings and our responsibility according to our office. But the forgiveness is, um, for Christ's sake, is, is Christ's forgiveness. It's not like more authentic if the pastor gives it. Uh, however, the, in fact, it's, it's a great salutary thing when brothers and sisters in Christ forgive one another. And here's another salutary benefit. Private confession and absolution actually helps to strengthen the congregation, the brothers and sisters, to forgive one another as they themselves have received forgiveness. But it's a good question. Very good. So you can ask a question. You won't get yelled at or anything. Sure you don't want to ask one? Why not? Oh. <laughs> 
Pat, did you have a question uh, came up in your readings? No. No, or none that you want to articulate in front of everyone. Beth. 18, Matthew. Matthew 18. Yeah. On its own, but is that? I just wonder if it's because we have like zapped out confession, so it's kind of like, well, what else can it be? <laughs> you know. Yeah. This gathered together in my name is you, you're you're joined together in the faith to be in my name means there's agreement on the basis of the word of God. Yeah. And, and so in this, this Matthew, you know, if your brother sins, go and show him his fault. It's not to rub his nose in it. It's like, so you're worried about Kara and you're fearful that she's lost her faith or is denying her faith or is living impenitently. So you go to her to try to help her for her benefit, not for yours. And then she, she tells you, shut off. And then you're even more grieved. So then you take Becca and the two of you go and say, Carl, we're really worried about you for this reason. And then she says, shove off. And then finally you come to me and then, then you and Becca and I go and say, we're really concerned about you. Okay, it's about a manifest impenitence that leads to the loss of faith and salvation. That's what Matthew 18 is about. Uh, there, there's, there, there, Matthew 18 is usually used this way. This, this way. You've done something I don't like. Okay, Beth, I'm going to you according to Matthew 18 and tell you, you did this and I didn't like it. Well, I'm sorry. Well, that's not good enough. Becca, come with me. Let's put the screws to her. She's got she's to realize what she did really bugged me. And then finally, she says, well, I'm not satisfied. I'm going to take it to the church. We're going to really put the screws to you. That has nothing to do with Matthew 18. Matthew 18 is about wanting to save someone. It's not about me getting my pound of flesh out of Beth. And then if I don't get my pound of flesh, I'm going to take several others with me until I finally extract from her. No, Matthew 18 is about being worried about, because it injures the body of Christ. This is the sin. It, it would be a horrible thing if, if Kara fell from the faith in impenitence and unbelief. It should break our hearts. It would break my heart. So we're going to go to her because we want to save her. And that's why Peter says at the end, well, then how? And so if you agree, two or three of you agree on this, she says, you're right, I have sinned. And so what you can rejoice together. So you have a little rejoicing party in the forgiveness of sins like the angels who are overjoyed over one sinner who repents. That's what it's about. And then so Peter catches this, you see. This is about forgiving. And so he says, how, how often shall I forgive? Seven times, that's a lot. And Jesus says, oh, it's even more than you think. It's unlimited. Not seven times, but 70 times seven. Really? 
And then what follows next is the parable of the unforgiving servant who's forgiven a debt and then that he, it's like the national debt, he's forgiven. And then he turns around and goes out and finds one of his fellow servants who owed him a few bucks. And he grabs him by the throat and says, pay everything and I'll put you. He wants the pound of flesh. And the fellow servants are grieved. And they go to the master with this grief. And then he calls me and says, you wicked servant, I fate forgave you that entire debt because you begged me. Should you not have forgiven? You know, it's the argument from the greater to the lesser. If God forgives us the debt of sin that we could not have paid for, how much more should we then forgive one another? That's what Matthew 18 is all about. And so Peter says, how often shall I forgive? Not seven times, but 70 times seven. Okay. Carl. That's true. You know, sometimes the, the absolution is true whether you feel it or not. And that's a great point to underscore. The word is true whether you feel it or not. Remember the Canaanite woman whose daughter was severely demon-possessed and she cries out for Jesus, you know, son of David, have mercy, and he doesn't answer her. You know, and then finally the disciples send her away. And I wasn't sent except to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And it's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the little dogs. She says, true, Lord, I'm a little dog. But even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from the master's table. And then he says, a woman, great is your faith. Faith believes the word regardless of how one feels. The word is true. And that, that's the ground of certainty is in the word, not in feelings. But it, it can have the byproduct of joyous, rapturous relief. It can accomplish that. But the criterion as to whether or not it's true is anchored in Christ's death, the objective truth of the word, not in feelings. So thank you for that. Okay. All right, let us prepare for the supper.
Beloved in the Lord, let us draw near with a true heart and confess our sins unto God our Father, beseeching him in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to grant us forgiveness. Our help is in the name of the Lord, who made heaven and earth. I said I will confess my transgressions unto the Lord. O Almighty God, merciful Father, I, a poor, miserable sinner, confess unto you all my sins and iniquities with which I have ever offended you and justly deserved your temporal and eternal punishment. But I am heartily sorry for them and sincerely repent of them. And I pray you of your boundless mercy and for the sake of the holy, innocent, bitter sufferings and death of your beloved Son, Jesus Christ, to be gracious and merciful to me, a poor, sinful being. Upon this, your confession, I, by virtue of my office as a called and ordained servant of the word, announce the grace of God unto all of you, and in the stead and by the command of my Lord Jesus Christ, I forgive you all your sins in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Let us pray. Lord God, Heavenly Father, we offer before you our common supplications for the well-being of your church throughout the world. So guide and govern her by your Holy Spirit, that all who profess themselves Christians may be led into the way of truth and hold the faith in unity of spirit, in the bond of peace, and in righteousness of life. Send down upon all ministers of the gospel and upon the congregations committed to their care the healthful spirit of your grace, that they may please you in all things, Behold in mercy all who are in authority over us. Supply them with your blessing, that they may be inclined to your will and walk according to your commandments. We humbly ask your abiding presence in every situation, that you would make known your ways among us, preserve those who travel, satisfy the desires of your creatures, and help those who call upon you in any need, that they may have patience in the midst of suffering, and according to your will, be released from their afflictions. Through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. The Lord be with you. And also with you. Lift up your hearts. We lift them to the Lord. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. It is truly good, right, and salutary that we should at all times and in all places give thanks to you, Holy Father, almighty, everlasting God, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who accomplished the salvation of mankind by the tree of the cross, that where death arose, their life also might rise again 
and that the serpent who overcame by the tree of the garden might likewise by the tree of the cross be overcome. Therefore, with angels and archangels, and with all the company of heaven, we laud and magnify your glorious name, evermore praising you and saying, Holy, 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 Lord God of Sabaoth, heaven and earth are full of thy glory. Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of all creation. For you have had mercy on us and given your only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. At your command, Abraham prepared to offer his son Isaac as a sacrifice on the mountain. Yet in mercy you provided a ram as a substitute. We give you thanks that on Calvary you spared not your only son, but sent him to offer his life as a ransom for many. As we eat and drink his body and blood, grant us, like Abraham our father, to trust in your promise now fulfilled in Christ, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. Hear us as we pray in his name and as he has taught us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Our Lord Jesus Christ, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat. This is my body, which is given for you. This do in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you. This cup is the New Testament in my blood, which is shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. The peace of the Lord be with you always. Amen. Amen. O Christ, thou Lamb of God, that takest away the sin of the world, have mercy upon us. O Christ, thou Lamb of God, that takest away the sin of the world, have mercy upon us. O Christ, thou Lamb of God, that takest away the sin of the world, grant us thy peace. Amen.
body of Christ given for you. The 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 body of Christ given for you. blood of Christ shed for you. The 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 blood of Christ shed for you. blood of Christ shed for you. The body and blood of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ strengthen and preserve you body and soul in the true faith unto life everlasting. Depart in peace. Christ given for you. The blood of Christ shed for you. The body and blood of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ strengthen and preserve you body and soul in the true faith unto life everlasting. Depart in peace. Amen.
Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, and his mercy endures forever. Blessed Savior Jesus Christ, you have given yourself to us in this holy sacrament. Keep us in your faith and favor that we may live in you even as you live in us. May your holy body and precious blood preserve us in the true faith to life everlasting. For you live and reign with the Father and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Let us bless the Lord. Thanks be to God. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen. Amen.